Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The trade in rhinoceros horn is illegal, but for those on the right side of the law, the beasts do bring in money as a tourist attraction. But because it's expensive to protect them from poachers, there's something of a bear market for rhinos. And... Coin tosses have been used to decide everything from the fates of elections to who shoots first in penalty shootouts. But are they even fair? First up, though. Okay. My mom is telling the horrific stories. She's saying that many, many people... Yocheved Lifshitz, an 85-year-old Israeli woman held captive by Hamas and released this week, recounted her ordeal to reporters yesterday with help from her daughter. That she was taken through the plowed fields. While she was do- being taken, she was hit by uh, sticks by Shabab. Yeah, Shabab. On October 7th, Hamas entered Israel and absconded with hundreds of hostages and also perhaps even bodies. Ms. Lifshitz is one of only four who have been released. And ever since, it's, it's, it's uh, like living in a nightmare. Um, the For the families of the remaining captives, life has been constant, anxious limbo. I feel guilty for eating. I feel guilty for sleeping in my own bed. I feel guilty for playing with my children or covering my children at night. On Sunday, hundreds of people gathered for a silent vigil for those hostages outside the residence of President Isaac Herzog, while inside he met with relatives of those still in captivity. It seemed like a non-political display of solidarity. But for months before the war, crowds had gathered in that same place every Saturday to rail against the government. Now the response to the hostage crisis may add to political disquiet that, for now anyway, has taken a back seat. What makes this war between Israel and Hamas and the other Palestinian organizations in Gaza very different from the previous wars that we've had over the last decade and a half is that there are currently over 200 hostages being held in Gaza by Hamas and some of the other organizations there. Anshul Pfeffer is our Israel correspondent and is based in Jerusalem. Their presence there from a tactical level will have some kind of influence on Israel's moves within Gaza. But also on a political and social level, the fact there are so many families clamoring for any information and for trying to work out what the government is planning to do about their loved ones is having a major impact within Israel. 
So what has the government been doing about this so far? In the early days of this war, there was a feeling that the government was totally bewildered and they were still trying to come to grips with the scale of the attack. And at that point, the families who knew that their, their loved ones were missing were simply waiting for some kind of notification from the government. And the fact that they were getting no information as far as the families were concerned was the first failure. From their perspective, they were already being let down. And I think as the days passed, and they were only slowly beginning to be notified officially of what the government believes happened to their relatives, their feeling that they weren't getting the full picture continued. And then as the talk began of how a military operation in Gaza may unfold, there was then the feeling that the fate of the hostage wasn't sufficiently a consideration in the government's and in the army's operational planning. And that was the second, I think, big disappointment from the family's perspective. And only gradually did we begin to hear government spokespeople saying, yes, of course, the hostages are a top priority for us in our planning. But it really took time, I think, for that to become part of the government's message. And that was very worrying for the families. But what's behind all these missteps, that, that lack of communication? Well, the Israeli government is dealing with so many issues. There is a war, there's operations planned on the ground, there's the intelligence effort, there is the major financial issue of rebuilding the communities which were devastated in the attack on October 7, and 360,000 Israelis have been called up to their reserve units in the army, so that's also something that the Israeli economy has to shoulder. And there's the prisoner issue, and all these things together seem to be overwhelming the Netanyahu government, which, as it is, hasn't been functioning very well since it took office nine and a half months ago. There wasn't a government coordinator for Israeli hostage affairs, which there's been in the past. Netanyahu hasn't appointed someone, so there wasn't really a point man on this. He did appoint someone on the day after the October 7 attack, but that person wasn't perhaps the best choice. It's an ex-general who hasn't really got the experience for this job, and it would seem that his political credentials, his personal loyalty to Netanyahu, were the main reason he was appointed. And the families haven't waited for the government. They've set up their own headquarters with hundreds of volunteers, lawyers, negotiators, former diplomats, every type of function that you would need in a major hostage situation is actually being carried out now on a private level by the families. So how is that kind of family organization being organized? So among the families, there are quite a few well-connected people. One of them, the uncle of one of the hostages, David Zamanovich, is an Israeli lawyer, businessman with very good contacts, both in government and in the defense establishment. And he's the main driving force behind what's called the family headquarters. He set up the offices with a lot of help, for also from tech companies, which helped start tracking down cell phone signals within Gaza analyzing hundreds, even thousands of hours of footage on social media, which was going up on October 7 and ever since to try and see if they could recognize as many possible of the hundreds of people missing and, and locate where they are. So the first thing they were trying to do was just to try and establish a, a list and give the families who were reporting to them that their relatives were missing some kind of an idea of where they were and also to coordinate with the government, which was swamped by this issue, the next stage was to set up this much wider organization, which would, first of all, support the families in this very difficult time they're going through, and then mobilize a campaign on their behalf, whether it's in the media, they're working with both Israeli and international news organizations, they're talking to diplomats from around the world, and they have people also 
in a much more discreet way, talking to sources uh, in the Arab world on their behalf. And this is all being organized from the offices of, of David Zalmanovich in Tel Aviv. So it's clear that family groups feel let down, but there has been some progress, right? There, there have been hostages released this week. Yes, there, there were two releases on Friday night and on Tuesday night, each time of two women. In the first case, it was a teenage girl and her mother, both American-Israeli dual citizens. In the second case, it was two women in their 80s. And though there is obviously a huge relief for those families of those who were released, at the same time, there still is over 200 prisoners there. This doesn't seem to be part of a process of release, but more sort of a gesture by Hamas to try and appease their Qatari patrons and perhaps American and international pressure. The two women in their 80s who were released on Tuesday nights, their husbands who are of the same age are still there in Gaza. Nobody knows what's happening with them. So it's a very small relief in comparison to the big uncertainty of uh, over 200 people who are still being held there for now almost three weeks. And what about the wider response for people who don't have family members, friends dragged into Gaza? What is it telling them that the, the government is is not succeeding in any way on that score? Well, there's a widespread disappointment in the way the government has been acting on so many fronts. I think the civil relief operation here, where you would have expected there to be more support for thousands of families who have just been uprooted by what's happened. And the government is slowly beginning to roll out various uh, programs for financial relief, but it's still very faltering. And in within this uh, context, the, the, the families who are not getting information from the government, who don't feel that, that their interests are being represented, they are sort of a focal point, I think, for what is a growing sense of anger towards the Netanyahu government. So how do you think all of that disappointment in the government will play out over the, the coming weeks and months? We have to remember that this war began after nine months in which the government was trying to pass through a very controversial plan of judicial reform. And we've spoken here on the podcast a number of times about the very widespread protest movement in Israel. And what has happened over the last two and a half weeks, that's all been suspended. The government isn't going to push legislation during the war. And the protest movement itself has basically changed into a sort of war effort volunteer organization. But Nobody's under any illusions that this very deep split in Israeli society that we saw in the past nine months has now ended. And certainly when the war is over, this will burst out once again in a very angry way. People are saying there's no way that Netanyahu can stay in office after such a terrible catastrophe, probably the worst that Israel's ever experienced in its history. Now, the families are saying we're not political we don't want to go against the government. But some of the vigils in Tel Aviv outside the defense ministry have become more noisy and angry. And I think that we may start seeing this becoming a new protest movement during the war. People want to feel that the government is doing something and does have some kind of coherent policy and people aren't feeling that. Anshul, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. Did you ever imagine what it would look like to live on the moon? How would you breathe? Where would you sleep? Would you want a room with a view of Earth or the celestial heavens? Imagine sitting on a crater that is 20 kilometers wide and, and you look down into the crater and you see nothing but darkness, okay? And above you, you see nothing but darkness and the stars. 
Science fiction is full of stories of people living out among the stars. But science fact is fast catching up. I'm Jessica Camila Gire, and for The Economist, I've been talking to people about a blueprint for a moon habitat. If I would compare it to something, I would compare it to some of the Mediterranean architecture you know. But then, of course, the space is, is a continuous curve, and it has this kind of very tall, almost Gothic arch. What I discovered was a vision for the evolution of humanity. You've gone beyond what you thought you were capable of. You've reached you know, the outer edge of human's footprint on the universe. You're sort of staring out beyond, and, and yet weirdly you're at the lowest rung of a ladder that, that generations of people are gonna climb as they leave Earth. I don't know, you mark a place in history. That's The weekend Intelligence, coming this Saturday from The Economist. Jason, as you know, I get into some scrapes as Africa correspondent for The Economist, but occasionally I have some fun as well. So I want to show you a video of a recent trip I made to the Northern Cape in South Africa. Now, for the benefit of listeners, that's John McDermott. John, yes, we've heard about your scrapes and the bit of fun you occasionally get to have. What I'm seeing here, kind of a big open area. There's a great many people trying to manhandle a rhino into what appears to be the back of a truck. I don't know if anyone's ever moved house before, but it's a whole lot easier than moving a rhino, I'd suggest. A few months ago, I watched a southern white rhino, which is the largest of the five main types, getting transported into a van by more or less 20 people. She'd just been tranquilized by a dart. So a vet had been kind of dangling out of a helicopter and then fired a tranquilizer dart at her sizable rear. And then she staggered with some help of this score of people into the nearest truck. Her generous rear. Are you fat shaming this rhino, John? I would never seek to shame a rhino. And there's another video here where you can actually see her face. She seems uh, neither as frightened nor as angry as you might expect, but I guess that's the tranquilizer dart. Um, Tell me why it is you were there for this rhino-moving event. There's a lot of attention paid to the illegal trade in rhino horn, but far less is written or known about the trade in live rhinos. And I wanted to see how one went about receiving a rhino that had been bought in all its staggering and grunting beauty. So tell me about the the business of, of rhinos then. Well, today, a male rhino costs about 150,000 rand, so about $8,000 or the price of a new Ford Fiesta in South Africa, which weighs roughly the same, I imagine. But that price is actually a lot lower than it was, say, a decade ago. According to some researchers from Stellenbosch University, the dollar price of a Southern white at auction is 70% lower than 10 years previously. So it's not a particularly elegant market, as those videos show, but nor is it a lucrative one anymore. And this was spectacularly shown a few months ago when a man called John Hume, who owned 
2,000 southern white rhinos on his farm just outside Johannesburg received no bids when he put them up for sale. So it took a deep-pocketed NGO called African Parks to step in with some donors to take the rhinos off his hands a fraction of the price. So I must admit to Googling while you were speaking there, the average male white rhino is about twice the weight of the average Ford Fiesta. But just coming back to the numbers, why are these things so cheap, getting so much cheaper? It's a good question. Why is there this bear market in rhinos? Well, ultimately, the people who look after rhinos in South Africa are private game reserve owners. They are the ones that have managed to take southern white numbers up to close to 20,000. But it's these private owners who are facing increasing costs from poaching. And they're finding they have to spend more and more money on guns, security guards, fencing, and so on, just to ensure that the criminal syndicates who do the poaching aren't coming and getting the rhinos. So the money they make from the live rhinos, usually from having tourists take photos of them or hunters come and shoot surplus bulls, isn't increasingly enough to cover these rapidly expanding costs. So you say the rhino numbers now are a sign of a conservation success. How much does that change in price affect the sort of conservation status of rhinos? There's not an immediate crisis. A century ago, there were barely 100 southern white rhinos left in the wild. Today, there is close to 20,000, way more than, say, there are black rhinoceroses. But that number has come down over the past decade or so, as there's been so much poaching in South African national parks. And that has meant what happens in these private reserves, which account for now more than half of the total rhino population, more and more important. But ultimately, if more and more of these reserve owners feel it's just not worth it, then they will get out of the business of rhino conservation. So is anyone trying to do anything to sort of stop the the plummeting prices? You do see some efforts by a variety of actors to try and get ahead of things. Last year, the World Bank even issued its first ever rhino bond, which is trying to raise some money for a couple of state parks in South Africa to look after black rhinos better. And there are various other ideas that blend finance and conservation to that end. But ultimately, what the rhino owners themselves say would be the simplest solution to all this would be to allow them to sell the rhino horn. Wait a minute, how does that help the problem at hand? Well, they would argue that they have a renewable resource. A rhino can grow one kilogram to one and a half kilograms of horn per year, and apparently it doesn't hurt very much when you chop it off and then allow it to regrow. Rhino horn is very valuable, by some estimates more so than gold. What the owners argue is that they are currently being asked to dehorn their rhinos and put that horn in vaults to disincentivize any would-be poachers, yet they can't do anything with this lucrative stash. That's because there's an international ban in place, one that's been there since about 1977. The proponents of that ban say, if we were to legalize it, we don't know that demand wouldn't go through the roof, and that would just further incentivize poaching. But what the rhino owners say, and I think convincingly, is that prohibition here, like in many other cases, hasn't worked. 
the problem has just been driven underground. And besides, the amount that has been taken into the black market, bought and sold on the black market, is still less than the amount that could be harvested off the thousands of rhinos currently in South Africa. So it sounds as if you're convinced too that the best way to save the rhinos is to give up such a strong fight about the horns? I think you have to be realistic. Conservation can be a very emotional field. People who go into it are incredibly passionate about nature, about animals. But the conservationists who set the rules don't have a monopoly on knowledge of wildlife, knowledge of ecosystems. And the people who are day in, day out, looking after these rhinos, they know what they're doing and they understand that ultimately conservation is expensive. So legalizing the rhino horn trade would seem to be, at least in the short term, an experiment worth trying. Because at the moment, we have this macabre logic, call it the horn laws, that the animals are simply worth more dead than they are alive. John, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Legend holds that the city of Portland, Oregon was nearly called Boston. Gilad Amit is a science correspondent for The Economist. The name was decided on in 1845, allegedly between Francis Pettigrove, who came from the Portland in Maine, and Asa Lovejoy, who came from the Boston in Massachusetts. They tossed a coin to decide the matter. But according to a new paper by František Bartos, who's a grad student at the University of Amsterdam, the result might have been different if the two men hadn't been such wobbly tossers. His new paper tests a long-standing prediction that coins aren't equally likely to come down heads or tails. So Mr. Bartos is suggesting that coin tossing isn't necessarily fair. Yeah, that's basically it. Human beings aren't perfect coin-tossing machines. When we flip a coin in the air, we are going to give it a slight rotation around the axis. So it doesn't just somersault end over end, it also turns a little. And that's called precession. A group of mathematicians in 2007 modelled the physics and found that this meant that coins were more likely to face the same way they were before they were tossed. So in other words, if I had a coin that was facing heads up and I flipped it, there was a slight chance, a 51% chance, they said, that it would land heads up as well. So that was the prediction and it needed testing. This is where Mr. Bartosz came in. He rounded up 48 volunteers, and over the course of a couple of months, they flipped 350,707 coins. And did Mr. Bartosz find this prediction to be accurate in practice? So the surprising news is, yes, the coins landed same side up 50.8% of the time, so very close to the predicted 51 They tested a large number of coins, the coins themselves had no particular bias, and the only determining factor really seems to be the fact that humans can't flip a coin predictably. Okay, Gilad, 50.8% doesn't sound that different from 50%. How much does this actually matter? 
So it is really small, but the house advantage that casinos enjoy in several varieties of blackjack is smaller than this. So it can actually make a difference in the long run. And we should remember some elections have been decided on coin tosses. A coin toss determines who serves first in tennis, who bowls or bats first in cricket, or even or who buys who lunch. Ore, I have a 2p piece here. It's heads up. Which side would you like? Well, based on what you've just said, I'm going for heads. Okay. And it's heads. Gilad, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for my lunch. Uh, Ore, a pleasure. <laughs> That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Now, remember, if you're not already a print or digital subscriber to The Economist and want to hear all our weekly shows, our new weekend edition of The Intelligence, and brilliant new series like Boss Class, you'll need to sign up for Economist Podcasts Plus. You've still got a few more days to avail yourself of our half-price offer, just a couple of dollars or pounds a month. Check out those show notes or search Economist Podcasts. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.